2: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Later in the show, we will hear from Professor Stefan Szymanski from the University of Michigan, the author of Soconomics, the original book on football finance. Uh, Professor Stefan Kieran, Professor... Yeah, but he, he's not—he's not being called a boffin by the Daily Star, so you yeah, know, yaboo and sucks to him. Yeah, that's that's, that's such an English response, and that yeah, he, not being called a boffin by the Daily Star—it's very funny. You, I—I know, I was unable to talk to him, so um, or either that or I felt that I was too immature to talk to him. So you—you you did the interview, and I understand it was very interesting, Kieran. So I'm, I look forward to hearing it. Yep. Good. But how did did, did was it was it good? Was it was it? Football finance expert talking to football finance expert. Was it hands across the sea? Yeah, well, I was, I was a bit of a fanboy because I I, I read Sockonomics years ago,
0: and uh, that sort of accelerated my enthusiasm for the subject. Uh, and you know, Stefan's an economist, and I'm more of a uh, I'm more of an analyst. Except I sort of put the anal into analyst in terms of the way that I look at things. I'm quite obsessed. Uh, yeah. he, he's he, he, he's much smarter than I am, and and but uh, I, yeah, I, it was it was it was it was an honour for me to
2: speak to him. I was absolutely yeah. chuffed. Good. Yeah, but please tell me that at no stage you said I put the anal into analyst. <laughs> Not during the interview. No, um, that's good. And did you both of you take time off to have a go at Swiss Ramble just for a couple of minutes? <laughs> 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 it's news day, uh, Kieran, and we do have some big news stories, of course and some ongoing ones. Um, first of all, UEFA have approved the new financial regulations to replace FFP now.
0: Yes, uh, financial, uh, financial fair play is going to be no more. Uh, and the one thing which is very clear from what UEFA have said is that any form of uh, competitive balance within football is dead. So you know, they're, they're, yeah, if, if you've got any, any any remaining element of romance in you whatsoever, uh, which which there hasn't been a lot, yeah, you know, we're we're all clinging on to Leicester City in 2016. Yeah. Um, just 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 say just say goodbye to this. Um, it's very much a case of giving the big clubs exactly really what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, they, they didn't get their own way with Super League but um what these new rules are going to do is that they're very much going to bake in the the existing differences uh between the the bigger clubs and the smaller clubs um there's there's going to be what they call three pillars um under the new financial sustainability rule so even you know the word fair which, I always felt was a misnomer, yeah. um, is yeah. is going to disappear altogether. The first thing is 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 I think it's pretty good. Um, it's, it's called the the, the overpayments rule. It, they're going to the UEFA are going to have quarterly checks, and if you have outstanding money owed to the tax authorities or to players for unpaid wages or for transfers, they're going to send the boys round, um, and, and that will be in the form of uh, it could be points deductions um, in respect of the uh the champions league europa league and the conference league um it could be fines it could be expulsion it depends um it depends on the extent so they're they're going to use a a fairly heavy stick um and and the next bit this this seems uh this this did confuse me because it, it the talk is about sustainability well under the current uefa rules you're allowed to lose up to 30 million euro mm-hmm. over three years. And they're now saying under the new rules, you can lose up to 60 plus a further 10 million if you're in financial good health. Now here's here's the paradox. If you're losing 60 million, by definition, you're probably not in financial good health. Yeah. So why are they allowing you to lose more? So so that that did seem a bit strange. Um, but yeah, we'll have to take a look at the small print and the the third element and th- this is where I, I really do think the 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 existing gaps between football are going to be baked in, is that um, clubs are only going to be allowed to spend seventy percent of revenue mm-hmm. on wages on players, head coaches, i think net transfer fees and agents' fees, so if you are. Real Madrid and you've got 5 or 600 million. Um 70% of that is 350 million. Yeah. And if you're say a club like Palace who who gets into Europe, um you you you're starting off at 150 million, 70% of that is 105. So the big clubs they they start off with more money, so therefore they can pay the bigger wages, which means that they can attract the best talent. Yeah. And and that cycle is is baked in uh, into the system to prevent any form of challenge or disruption so the aim is is not to prevent the likes of manchester city and chelsea and psg who have who have benefited from from very benevolent owners this historically the aim is to prevent another chelsea or psg or um yeah or, or manchester yep. city where this leaves newcastle united we're not sure um, so yeah that that doesn't look great. you combine that with the the two wild card entries yeah. to the Champions League, which are going to be based on your uh UEFA coefficient over the last ten years i if, if you've been a big club in the last ten years we're, if and if if you're not capable of getting into the uh, the champions League by finishing in the top four we're, we're still going to find a way of letting you in anyway mm. and and isn't this what what super league clubs wanted?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd be careful if I were you, Kieran. You, you got into enough trouble when you said you wanted Palace to win the FA Cup. Now you're talking about Palace being in Europe. I'd, I'd, I'd pick another example next time, Kieran. <laughs> do, do you know what's interesting? And, and we talked about this a couple of times recently about how there is still a lack of understanding about essentially what FFP is, was, and what it is for. And it's always based around that word fair. I, I was in a writing mm. room today working on a pilot with um, eight other comedians and writers, all big football fans. Uh, And, of course, we were talking about football. There's a football show we're working on. Um, And it's quite clear that most of them are are very vague as to what financial fair play... Was brought in for and what the rules are, and I found myself in the unusual situation of people going, "Well, you do a football finance podcast," and and obviously having not paid that much attention, <laughs> just saying some things, and and I threw amortisation in just to just always good, just to impress them, and but it's 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 really interesting, but. Uh, the understanding, you know, two of them are Arsenal fans, still furious that Arsenal wanted to be in, in, in the Super League, but none of us had any real concept of what financial fair play is, and we still we still don't, and I don't think we're going to have any real concept of what it is in the future. And it, it, English football is on track to go down a similar path this summer as well, isn't it? Yes, um, it looks as if the, the
0: EFL in particular is going to introduce this this soft wage cap where the amount that you can pay in wages is linked to the amount of revenue that you generate now this this is going to this again is going to cause one or two issues because if you are relegated from the premier league then you've got the benefit of an extra 40 million pounds of parachute yeah. payments so 70% of that is is 28 million if if you've just come up from league 1 you've probably come up on a, on a wage budget of 6 or 7 million we've got fulham who were relegated from the premier league last year on a wage bill of 114 um you know, the, the champ- and that's why the championship is this this lunatic division and, yeah. and spectacularly lunatic as well and, and you know it it's it's really great to see coventry and luton doing so well um, um under such circumstances um but i i think this is all part of the efl's uh, ambition to get more money out of the Premier League, um, and, and I can't see the Premier League volunti- voluntarily giving more money. Although I think there is certainly a case for for a complete review of distribution yeah we, we've discussed things like EPPP and how that that really um uh, gives a huge advantage to, to premier league clubs in terms of picking up all the best young talents so that means they don't have to go and pay transfer fees at a later stage um it it, it, it is a mess but to to just have these rules introduced without a, a more comprehensive overview of finances um, i i think that it's going it's going to Repeat and rinse the the cycle of yo-yo clubs that we're seeing. Uh, you know the likes of Rotherham, perhaps Barnsley, who, who potentially are going to go down, and they came up a couple of years ago um, from League One and uh, and the Championship, and potentially Wickham as well. And then we've got clubs like Fulham, West Brom, uh, Norwich, you know, bouncing up between you know, the, the, the bottom three or four of the Premier League and the top three or four. Of, of the championship. And, and do we want that? I, I don't think people do. And, and yet, at the same time in the Premier League, we accept that the top four are the same old, same
2: old faces and, and nobody seems yeah. to give a damn. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, impressed by my knowledge of financial fair play in Europe in this meeting today, Kieran, um, some of the young people say, what's going on with Rowan Bromovic? You, you clearly got the inside track. I said, well, you know, legally, lads, I'm not allowed to tell you a lot, but clearly, you know. uh, (laughs) I said, what I can tell you is he's he's planning to buy a Spanish side when or the Chelsea. And they were like, oh, my God, how do you know that? I didn't have the heart to tell them. The guy put it in an email (laughs) with the news (laughs) stories. And it was clearly the public domain. But um, it's a strange one because you would think Roman Abramovich would kind of want to keep his head down rather than make what I think is a sort of defiant statement about... His plans to buy a Spanish club once he's got the money from Chelsea.
0: Yeah, this this is a weird one. Um, this is all to do uh, with Valencia, who are currently owned by Peter Lim, who we mentioned, I think, yeah. last week when talking about Salford City. He owns yeah. 50%. Yeah. And he he is the person who we strongly suspect is the, the person who is funding the losses at Salford. Yeah. Um and th- this this uh, this revelation came from a rival. There's there, it looks like Peter Lim is trying to sell Valencia for around about two hundred and fifty million euro, and um, there are apparently two bidders, one of whom is a Spanish guy uh, who has now gone to the press and say, "Well, I was planning to buy it, but Roman Abramovich is trying to buy it as well." And everybody goes, yeah. "What? Hey, yeah. you sure? Yeah. Um, because you y- you would think that Roman Abramovich, you know, has has his hands tied." um yeah you know, because anybody that, that follows some of the the unusual twitter accounts can follow his aircraft around the world and he and he yeah. does appear to be uh you know one, one minute he's he's looking he's he's got that sphinx-like smile uh, appearing in in negotiations between Russia and Ukraine yeah. the next minute he's he's off on a super yacht um and the next minute you know, we we've got the the Chelsea deal um up for approval on i think it's the 18th or you know it looks like that's we're going to get a a preferred bidder coming through in the yep. next few days. So he's got his hands full. Um, but uh, this this is the accusation, and also in respect of Roman Abramovich, um, the Jersey government and the French government have said, "Oh, by the way, Roman, uh, you've got a load of assets. You've got a load of companies. We're freezing your assets." So so how how's he? He, he can't he can't have that many places where he's got a, a spare two hundred and fifty million euro to go and co- go and buy a football club and. What's going to be the reaction of the Spanish authorities and La Liga? So it, it does seem very odd indeed uh, if if this rumor is true, and, and it has come. It's not. You, know, you never get very much out of Abramovich himself. Um, this has come from somebody who said, "Well, I, I was going to buy Valencia, but uh, but now Roman Abramovich is entered yes. the fray. Um, why?"
2: And what's interesting as well Kieran is that there are several stories over the weekend in in various newspapers uh, claiming that Abramovich is uh, is having to borrow money from uh, wealthy friends etc but this story if true would clearly imply that he will be getting the money for the sale of Chelsea football club which would come as a surprise to some people wouldn't it uh
0: yes well especially as as he gave a, a public statement um before his assets yep. were frozen by the UK government, in that I am I'm putting Chelsea Football Club up for sale, um and the the net proceeds are going to the victims of the conflict in Ukraine.
2: Yeah.
0: So that's that's pretty unequivocal. Um, uh, there is no way the UK government will release funds from the sale of the club uh you know that money will go into some form of frozen bank account there will be separate so whilst roman abramovich potentially will have some say stroke influence as to who the new owners of chelsea are because ultimately he is the shareholder who who is selling his shares yeah. um and uh, it looks as if the Rain Group they've they've narrowed down the potential owners to four, yeah. um, including Harrison Blitzer, who, who yeah. are part owned uh, Palace. We've got uh, a, a new guy who's come in, who's sort of come come out with come out of the uh, come out of the ether really, but he owns fifty five percent of of Atalanta. Yeah. There's the Ricketts Group who probably the outsiders given some of the comments from old man Ricketts, which yep. were pretty unpleasant. Um, and, and then I think I'd say that the favorite is Todd Bowley, who, who mainly because he, he's his, his ability to buy the club involves less complications than the other. And, that, and that's the only reason why I think he's, he's probably slightly ahead of the others at present. Um, but yeah, Bramovich will have to be involved in that decision because because it, it's his shares um, yeah. that are being sold. And then a recommendation will be made, and on the basis of that recommendation, here HM government and uh, the Premier League will do uh, will do their review. And if the if the, if, if the proceeds of sale go through, it will go into a frozen bank account. There is no way on earth that the government is going to allow Roman Abramovich to pocket two and a half billion pounds from yeah. the sale of Chelsea Football Club. Uh,
2: interesting as well, Kieran. All four of the favourites we we think the, the, the four from which the preferred bidder will be chosen have made public statements about their willingness and desire to protect the heart and soul of Chelsea Football Club which is something that perhaps the Glazers could look at because we've talked long and hard on this show about uh, Liverpool fans and various Liverpool groups like Spirit of Shankly etc uh, who are determined to protect the club and what they, what they feel is the, the ethos of Liverpool and now Manchester United fans are determined to do the same because they're planning a wave of concerted, uh, a concerted wave of, of protests against the Glazers, which they've said will be, will be entirely peaceful. Uh, but they look like they're going to be in big numbers. And it's, what's interesting as well is, is that essentially what they're saying is that the, the way the Glazers do business is contrary to the way that we want Manchester United to be run And so I'm fascinated by what the outcome of this will be. Is there any way they could make a financial damage to the Glazers here? Because they're not talking about boycotting games. So I assume that it's going to be nuisance value rather than anything else to the Glazers. Yes, I mean it, it it won't look too good. I mean Manchester United
0: are at home to Norwich this weekend. Now, this is this is an organisation called the 1958 group. Yeah. Um and, and what they've said is um we're going to boycott the stadium until the 17th minute. Right. Uh to step 17 representing, you know, each 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 year of yeah. of Glazer ownership. Um and and I think if, if we take a look at what's happened at United, and this is this isn't a criticism, because you know, ultimately um we I can understand why some fans, but not all, and, and I know some really hardcore United fans yeah. who have walked away from the club in disgust yeah. um and who are still really, really angry. Um and that's why we have FC United in Manchester. Yeah, that, yeah, that sure. was set up as a protest. Yeah. Um but I think it's it's fair to say that there have been at times where we've had the green and gold movement, and yeah, uh, you know, there's been a wave of anger against the Glazers, and then United win three or four matches, and and it disappears. So so what the 1958 group are saying. The only way that uh, the glazers can be removed, and, and we are we are not advocating this or not advocating this, if there is a constant, relentless, legal and peaceful protest with regards yes. to their ownership. So Manchester United is an amazing brand. It, it's worth a fortune to sponsors. Um, and... We saw last year that one of the United sponsors called the Hutt Group, they, they ended up pulling out of a sponsorship arrangement because Manchester United fans started to target the sponsors. Yeah. And, in, and in, indirectly, they're, they're hitting the Glazers. Um, and I think that's the route which is most likely to generate a response. Now, I I did some research um on what's happened under the Glazers' ownership. And Manchester United were listed on the New York Stock Exchange in August 2012. Now, if you'd put a £1,000 into Manchester United shares in 2012, those shares today would be worth £992. Right. That's, that's a pretty poor return. Yeah, your money's gone down. If, if you'd invested it just in the Dow Jones average – it would be worth two thousand four hundred and sixty-four. So you more than doub- you know, you doubled yep. your money, and more. If, if you put your money into Tesla, um, I think you've ended up with something like one hundred and seventy-three thousand. So you know, but, but that's that's the vagaries of the stock market. Sometimes it's very successful.
2: Sometimes it's not. Well, uh, sorry, can, Kieran, can I? I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but i I'm, I'm just slightly confused by that figure. If that's the case, why is it that we're constantly reading about the Glazers paying themselves huge dividends every year? Well, um that, that's that's a, a separate issue. Right. Uh, the, the the argument
0: I think put forward by the 1958 group and others is that um they wouldn't if if Manchester United were winning trophies they wouldn't actually mind the glazers because right. you know the, the, the dividend is a reward. Right, and okay. They they've not delivered uh, very much since since 2012 um when the club has made profits the Glazers have paid themselves a dividend. When Manchester United have lost money, the Glazers have paid themselves a dividend. Oh, and all of that money could have been reinvested in the squad. Um, the club will say, "Well, actually, if you take a look at the numbers over the course of the last decade, we've we've spent uh, practically uh, certainly since uh, since about 2015, 2016, Manchester United have spent more money um, in the transfer market on a net basis than than any other club. So, you know, don't, don't ever go at us." Um, but then, then you've got to ask: Well, you know, have have players been signed because they've got a big social media profile and are good from the commercial department's point mm-hmm. of view, as opposed to being good footballers? Now, now, yeah, this isn't a football show. Yeah, you know, that's not really our area to look at. But um, you're, you're absolutely right, Kevin. You know, how can you justify paying dividends uh, when you've not delivered in terms of generating growth? in terms of the value of the shares. And that's what the Glazers have failed to do. Um, it, it was noticeable that, that they, they were quite happy to sell the shares last November when the share price was $21. It's now below $14. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, a fall in value of a third. But they still managed to find a dividend to, to pay in, in January. And they'll probably find uh, find that, that money to go and pay themselves one in a few months' time as well. And that really
2: grates with United fans. Yeah when things aren't good on the pitch. I think what else greats with Man United fans, having spoken to some this week, is that, you know, Ten Hag is obviously a very good young manager. He's done a fantastic job at, at Ajax. But Pochettino has been making come and get me noises to to the Glazers. Um, but they've gone for, essentially, as Man United fans say, they've gone for the less expensive option. Yeah. It's it, it, it how it seems to, to outsiders oh, and, and to Man United fans. And again, yeah, you know, that really grates. When when the glazers are inevitably paying themselves more money this time next year, it will be off the back of the fact they haven't spent any of that money trying to lure one of the best young managers in world football to the club. Yeah, yeah, and, and you can you can understand, you can understand the frustration. Um,
0: they've they've got to start delivering on the pitch yeah. because all, all of the all of the claims that yeah we've got one point one billion fans. Well, yeah, one point one billion fans have now had to wait nine years for a Premier League title. And yeah, I, I, I don't think many people will be putting a lot of money on United to win win the Premier League next season either.
2: I'd, or the season after that, or the season after that, I would guess. Um, it, it's a terrible sign of, of our age, Kieran, that I can't see the name Bellingham without struggling to say Linda in front of it. <laughs> uh, look her up, kids. But for, 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 for men of my generation, Linda Bellingham, let's just say, was a... Uh, an influential figure. Um, but Jude Bellingham, the sale of Jude Bellingham, has made a big difference to Birmingham City's latest accounts.
0: Yes. Um, and, and to a certain extent has, has saved Birmingham City's bacon. Uh, yeah, really? Birmingham did have a financial fair play penalty of, of nine points uh, just over a year ago. Mm. Um, they, they've they been told by the EFL that they really need to get their, their house in order. But... Um, they they lost thirty million quid. Yeah, that's six hundred grand a week every week. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. Yes, we yes we know that it was a COVID year, but Birmingham don't generate a huge amount of money from matchday ticket sales anyway. Yeah. So uh, to, to blame all of that on on COVID, I think is uh, is is a bit of a smoke screen. Um, Jude Bellingham. Amazing footballer, I think. When when he went to to Germany, you know, Birmingham said, "Well, we're going to retire his shirt. We we, we want we want him to have a legacy." And uh, his legacy is that he he dug them out of a hole. Yeah. Um. Because they, they made a twenty six million pound profit. That means that they've they've kept within the FFP limits. But that's that's a one off. And and the problem you have got at Birmingham is that in the last decade they've they've had 215 million pounds worth of money coming into the club and that includes i think 3 4 years of parachute payments yeah. 215 coming in and they've spent 255 million on wages yeah it's yeah. It's, it's so you can't just say well they have gambled one year this is a constant uh, inability to control costs yeah. or to have any form of quality control um w- within uh, their, their their spending function and it increases risk, especially when you've got owners who, who are based overseas and nobody's quite sure of their long-term motives or, or aims and
2: ambitions for the club. Yeah. Carlisle United have been on our uh, uh-oh list for a while now, and I find this news slightly worrying. That Supporters Trust have issued a public appeal to Pure Pay Retail to urgently discuss the matter of the club's debt.
0: Yes. Um, yeah. You know, Carlisle don't necessarily pe- feature on a lot of people's radar, and, and you know it's uh, uh, it, it's it's a, it's a great it's a great day out. I, I remember yeah. the last time I went there, Warren Aspinall scored the winning goal, gotcha. um, which is which 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 dates me a wee bit, uh, and, and Warren as well, I suspect. <laughs> um, but um, just to give a, a bit of a backstory, um, Carlisle. Um, did have a sort of a shareholder called Edinburgh Wooden Mill. Yeah. Woollen oh, sorry, woolen mill. Woollen yeah. mill. Not, w- yeah. not wooden. Um a strange strange mill that that made wood. Um but uh Ed- Edinburgh woollen mill went into administration with Carlisle owing uh, that company around about two point four million. Now what happened was that debt was sold on to a company called Pure Pay Retail, yeah. and nobody's quite managed to work out what Pure Pay, or Pure Pay Retail's ambitions are. Um, but for the last couple of years, when the Carlisle's accounts have come out, Pure Pay have put effectively said a statement to the auditors or to the club: "Say we don't want that money back for at least a year." For, but in the twenty twenty one accounts, no such statement. And the Supporters Trust, who who own shares in the yep. Carlisle holding company, they, they own a minority share, they have been requesting meetings, they've been trying to communicate to PurePay to get some definitive response because – if, if pure pay are going to turn around at, at any one moment and say uh yeah that 2.4 mil we we want it in in you know four weeks six weeks time yeah. we, we've got a problem now now Carlisle actually made a profit in 21 uh the club has cut its cloth you know, it has addressed the issue of, of uh of wages and so on so it's actually run uh, in a in my in my book as as a pretty damn well run club and it, it it's one of the few clubs that will get five or six stars from the quality of the information they put out in the account so they're actually very transparent and all 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 ticks all the boxes that I like to see but all you have to do pure pay is talk to people, yeah. engage, communicate, allay the fears and and, and these fears you know are, are genuine from the supporters' trust. As to what are your intentions, and if 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 the if the supporters trust know one way or the other, then at least they can plan. There, there is a, if if they demand that money back, we've we've got a crisis, yeah. um, and uh, you know it's it, it's it's an avoidable issue, and it can be solved in a simple manner. You just say we don't want that money back for the next twelve months, or we want you know ten percent of it back, or twenty percent of it back, and at least. People in Carlisle will
2: will have some degree of certainty. What we've got at present is is a mess. Well, it's precisely because of that uncertainty that they've been on our list. But it, it, is it common practice in business, Kieran, the selling off of debt?
0: Um. Yes. Yes. I mean, certainly when when an organisation goes into administration, you you can buy some of the individual assets. Um, from the administrators and and transference of debt is is one of those. So it it does happen. Um, It it can happen for for, for benevolent reasons. And and I think uh, this was the hope of the uh, Carlisle fan base when Pure Pay bought into this. Um, But we're not getting any further information from them. Mm
2: -hmm. Hartlepool United have been awarded compensation because of the way Fulham treated a young player who'd come through Hartlepool's youth ranks. Yes, this
0: is the uh, this is the story of Luca Murphy. Now, Luca Murphy um, was a scholar at Hartley Pool. He he joined the club. He was spotted at the age of nine. Um, he went through the you know the scholar program, and Fulham spotted him at, at Hartley Paul. And Fulham, by all accounts, offered a deal to to Hartley Paul, um, and they said, right, we'll, we'll take him on trial, but we will offer you a deal, and What happened next, nobody's quite sure. But following that trial, and and, uh, uh, as far as Hartley Ball is concerned, the offer came in first, then Luca Murphy went off um, for the trial, and then Fulham said, following the trial, uh, he's not good enough. Um, We're going to reject him. Now, we've spoken about the way that football clubs treat young people before, and we 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 don't know what happens. You know, only you know those close to him. Um, there, there there were issues, but um, Hartley Paul released him because they said, following the rejection by Fulham, there was a noticeable change in demeanour, enthusiasm for the game, and so on. So they they released him as a scholar, and lo and behold. Eleven days later, he he signs for Fulham. Wow! So, what what's all behind this? We don't know. Um, subsequently, he I don't think he I think he may have made one first team appearance or no first team appearance. It, it didn't work out for him at Fulham, and you know when his when his contract expired, um, he was released. But from Hartley Paul's point of view, and, and the reason why they're pretty cheesed off with this is. In their opinion, Fulham made an offer. Then, went, you know, went weird radio silence. So, so Fulham reported uh, and effectively took up this this case with the professional football compensation scheme, which has now awarded them a six-figure sum from Fulham. But as as Fulham have said, and Fulham's owner has said, you know, this this is this is peanuts. Two to Fulham. Yeah, you know, we're we're fully aware that Fulham have been ripping up the the championship this season, and it's I think it's fairly well known that Fulham have got one player on hundred thousand pounds a yeah, week in the championship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the highest paid player. Uh, we we don't need to name the player, but I think most people know who we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're t- we're talking one week's wages. Hartlepool United, um, is yeah again as an away fan, it's a great day out. There should be a plaque there because. That's where I had my first date with the Baroness. Indeed. So um, yeah, you know, it has got it's got fond memories for me. Um and this was during the pandemic, so that you know the club was was living from hand to mouth. And and it does show a certain degree of of arrogance and and, and lack of empathy and lack of care. Mm. Um, I think I think from Fulham who who haven't conducted themselves particularly well. Hartley Paul United are still here, which is great, and, and yes, they're gonna get the compensation. But it, it shouldn't be like this. You know,
2: if, if you make an offer, then then abide by it. And, I mean, two things, Kieran. First of all, the Baroness endeared herself to everybody she met at the live podcast because her version of that first night out in Hartlepool displayed slightly less enthusiasm than, than yours did. <laughs> um, but also, Kieran, regardless of the economics here, regardless of how much Hartlepool got – And we seem to be saying this every second pod. We're talking about the physical and mental well-being of a young man. It's just – football's got to sort this issue out. It's just not right. Um, Talking of not right, FIFA. Um, FIFA is going to launch its own – TV streaming service to show World Cup matches. And who knows, what they could do is get some extra money by sh- streaming uh, court cases that are going to be upcoming <laughs> with the various FIFA officials. So They'd be more likely to pay for that <laughs> for their streaming service to show World Cup matches. Why are they doing this, Kieran, when they're, they're freely available to most people through normal broadcasters? Right. Well, this this streaming service is called FIFA
0: Plus. And... Um, according to fifa this is going to help to democratize football. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so yeah and, 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 and i kept a straight face when i read that as well. yeah um, and the aim is to have 40,000 matches available which which is great. yeah I'm, but um the the first set of matches and, and this is this is where this is both a good thing and a bad thing. The first set of matches that FIFA are going to have available is going to be the Angolan Premier League. Oh, okay. Now, now yeah, exactly. That's my view. Okay, Angolan Premier League. Yeah. A- am I going to watch it? Well, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't tend to watch, you know, the Cypriot League. I don't tend to watch the Bolivian League. Um, if you can pick these up on on various channels or YouTube or so on, so is is there a market for this? We, we don't know um there's going to be 11,000 women's matches uh, really? available as well now if those matches are not being shown on domestic or t- tv or and it gives people an opportunity to see these matches fill your boots it's great um fifa have said the app is going to be initially free um they they're going to show archive matches so i think the first archive matches uh the i think it's the 1982 west germany versus italy game which which you and i can probably still talk through minute by minute yeah Uh, um yeah one of the great games of uh, and and that's great but ultimately how many people are going to watch it because you can watch it on youtube um it is 40 years old which which depressingly dates us um and we we we've seen all those goals in our head so is actually an audience there for it which is going to generate significant viewing figures we'll have to wait and see um they're going to have some independent documentaries as well um for both uh women's football and men's football that's great i think the 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 first one is called ronaldinho the happiest man in the world, which which I which I dispute because <laughs> <laughs> because I, I was happier when when Glenn Murray resigned for the Albion, so yeah. you know, I'm, I'm I'm not sure, sure about that. Um, but uh, so, so that's where they go. As far as the World Cup matches are concerned, I'm not convinced that FIFA will necessarily broadcast those, and the reason for that is the likes of the BBC. NBC, whoever it is in the States, they have paid FIFA an absolute fortune for the rights to broadcast. Now, there will be what's known as geo-blocking. So perhaps FIFA, if if you've got a country which doesn't have the the World Cup rights, FIFA could potentially broadcast there, but you wouldn't be able to use your FIFA Plus app in the UK because the matches have been bought by the BBC and ITV. Um, How are they going to make money from this well, yeah, the whole thing about apps is is that you pick up data about the users, um, and and if this is popular, then FIFA will be able to harvest that data, and they will be able to sell it on to to you know uh, marketing companies and so on. So so that's where I think FIFA will make the money from. I don't think this is a bad thing. Um, if if it allows you to see football which you otherwise wouldn't see, then I, I can't see a, a downside. Um, at the same time, trying to work out where it's going to go. I I think FIFA, they they want to show things like beach football and futsal Mm. and the FIFA World Club Championship because if you think about it this year, that ended up on Channel 4 because nobody bid for it. Sky weren't interested, BT weren't interested and and I think uh, FIFA ended up selling it about a week or two weeks before the actual matches took place. So there there's not a, so if FIFA I think they they're going to say well if if the traditional broadcasters don't want some of our stuff we will find it and you know if if you, if, if if it allows us to see you know the Cook Islands versus Malaysia uh, in a World Cup qualifier and you know it, it's a Thursday night and there's nothing better on telly uh you know and, and if I've managed to stop the Baroness from watching Married at First Sight Australia, <laughs> S- Series 18, Episode 37, um, then, then, yeah, I'll, I'll be there.
2: Do you know what? I, th- I think FIFA may have overestimated the desire of the modern football fan to sit through a whole game from mm. 1992. Um, mm. I-, I don't know if I've told you this before, but um, a-, a friend of mine produced a show uh, in London called Sing Along a Sound of Music which was very, very successful, where on a Friday and Saturday night, um, an audience of mostly gay young men uh, (laughs) went along dressed as various characters from The Sound of Music, um, and the lyrics were were put out. So they they sang along to The Sound of Music, and it's a wonderful show, life-affirming experience. And one of them had this brilliant idea of doing a similar thing for the 1966 World Cup final. (laughs) <laughs> that they would show the whole game yep, and they would encourage yep. people to come along dressed as Michael Kane with rosettes and rattles and they would sing all the songs. And they, they asked me to watch the game and, and to, to jot down the moments where they thought it would be appropriate for singing and laughing. And after 15 minutes, I was begging them to let me fast forward. It was <laughs> yes. simply one of the dullest games of football. I have seen. the goals, fine, but the, yep. the bits in between – this match played at walking pace, with and just essentially with, with numbers that have been sewn onto the shirts. That's that's what that's how dull it was. You start you start looking at how tightly the shirts are tucked into these. Those numbers are sewn on. It's just I don't think there is a market for people watching old games to be perfect. But uh, speaking of which, and we're doing well on the segways tonight. Oh yeah, it? yeah. Uh, Steve Hodge is selling Diego Maradona's Hand of God shirt. Um, there were people. Unkind people at the time, Kieran, who said that if Steve Hodges had shown half as much enthusiasm for catching up with Maradona when he scored that second goal as he did for catching (laughs) up with him to get his shirt at the end of that game. But it it turns out that he's he made a wise decision because it's going to sell for quite a lot of money, apparently, isn't it? Yes, the the guide price is four to six million.
0: Wow. Which is Wow. but it, it, it is an iconic, but there's a fly in the ointment oh. because it turns out that Diogo Maradona wore two shirts uh-huh. for that match. He wore oh. one in the first half uh, where he didn't score any goals, um, and he wore one in the second half where he did score the two goals. Now, um, Maradona in his autobiography, and Steve Hodge has also said, you know, we we did swap shirts at the end of the match. Um, and this is the shirt from from the second half diego maradona's daughter has said no 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 this this uh, the the, uh, the the real uh, hand of god shirt has has been uh, has has gone to somebody else who mysteriously she wouldn't name <laughs> um, i think Sotheby's, whoever whoever the auctioneers, are 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 confident um yeah but clearly the, the first half shirt where uh you know where where diego maradona got kicked by peter reed and terry butcher for yeah. 45 minutes probably isn't as as iconic as this, the second one but uh yeah Chris, christie's are confident and uh yeah i think steve steve hodge has been asked on many occasions to sell it and now well you you can understand that you know what what's what's the point in in having it at home or or uh you know he's 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 now at an age for, you know he goes, well, yeah we are talking many many years later yeah. um from that match itself so, uh, yeah, I think it could be the most expensive uh, sports shirt. I think it, it
2: will exceed even the price for one of the baseball shirts um, of all time. Well, do you know what, Kieran? I, I remember, I mean, at the time, it's I probably the most angry I've ever been at a football yes, match. Me too. Really. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, uh, age brings you hopefully some maturity and, and context. And,. So, what a fascinating guy. certainly anyone who's been to Naples and you can see the effect that Maradona still has on that city. It's Ooh. astonishing. His his image is everywhere in that city, even now. Uh, so I'm not surprised it's going to make a lot of money because it it must, it's probably one of the most iconic football items ever, really, isn't Ooh. it? Let's think yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, Stefan Simanski, Kieran, wrote a book, as we discussed earlier, called Soconomics which was probably the first time that the area of football finance was brought to a wider public. And it's still a book that's fascinating people now. You were lucky enough to interview him and this is what he had to say.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: Stephen thanks so much for coming on the show. I am absolutely made up because you're one of my heroes. You you are responsible for for my uh my entry into the world of of football and finance. So I owe you a huge amount.
1: Yeah, and you still haven't I gave you my bank account details and it's still not arrived. So yeah, you need to sort that out.
0: <laughs> I will do. I will do. Um so you you wrote soconomics um I've I've written a book on football and finance and I've, I found it a, a really painful experience. How how was it for you?
1: Oh well, so um unlike you I didn't I didn't try to do it on my own. I enlisted Simon Cooper. Um actually Spent a long time teeing up Simon. It was a conspiracy on my part, which took about two years because I knew he was the guy to write a book with if I was going to write a book, and um, it worked out a dream. Um, and yeah, so um, that—that's my advice to you for your next book: get a co-author.
0: <clears throat> right, I—I I, I might very well take that on board. Wait, watch this space. I'll say no more than that. Um, right, um, sort of ha- having read the book, you know. Uh, one of the one of the big things which came through was um, the the link between costs driving success on the pitch in the form of wages. Now, would it be fair to say we're effectively you know from one of the conclusions is that that wages are probably responsible for ninety percent of success. You've got the manager perhaps throwing in five percent and luck. Lady Luck, the other five percent, uh, and even with my accounting head on, I can ma- I can make that equal one hundred. Or, or is, is that being oversimplistic?
1: Well, I definitely think it's something like that. I mean, it, it depends on a lot of a lot of this depends on your time horizon, how long you're looking at. So the games this week, I like you know thinking about the Chelsea Real Madrid game last night. I mean, there was a hell of a lot of luck in that game, both in both ways, right? And that game could have turned out very differently. But The thing is, if you play these games over and over again, the team with the most uh with the highest paid players is going to win and the thing the thing that's important is that is not that that's a statistical truth, but the question is why is it true and the important thing to grasp is it's true because of the way the market for players work. There is an incredibly competitive market for players and the ability of players is very well understood by pretty much everyone engaged in the market and that's why the wages have to reflect your ability and if uh if they don't if you're getting underpaid then you just get bid away by somebody else and if you're being overpaid well you'll soon find you're being dropped so it's uh, i've always stressed the point that it's the reason why the wage performance links work that's interesting rather than the fact the the mere statistical fact
0: cool cool so we we now have a football system which is dominated by money uh, and it do you do you think football is therefore dead as a romantic
1: sport you're asking uh, an economics professor whether there's a rom- any romance in the world at all um, <laughs> I, it's a old question to ask um no i mean i i i, I think um of course there is. I mean, of course there's There's a lot of, uh, I mean, my. I my, when I was in England, the team I always supported was Scunthorpe United, which was where my mother came from. And through thick and thin, I've watched them and it's getting thin and very, very thin right now. It looks like they're going to drop out of the league this year, which is pretty depressing. Um, and now I live in uh, near Detroit. My c- team is Detroit City FC and I just love them. And they're a very small team. And the f- Football's not exactly the greatest you'll ever see, but they have the best fans and going to a game at uh, at, their, uh, um, at their stadium in Hamtramck in Detroit is just one of the best experiences you can have. So there's, there's romance aplenty, but I, I have this sort of um, schizophrenic view of the world where I can separate my romantic engagement with the game from the statistical and economic analysis
0: right yeah right yeah and, and we we had a we had a bit of a chat uh before this interview uh on 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 social media via a few messages and and one of the things which you said which intrigued me was it's time to abolish the transfer system could- could you expand upon that please
1: well i I, again, this is something I've been banging on about for quite a few years now, and it usually gets me um, uh, into very big arguments, because fans are tend to be very upset with this. But, but but, the starting point to say is, who else do you know who, on being offered a new job by another employer, has to get the say-so of their current employer, and their would-be new employer has to pay their old employer the same, uh, pay some, some money? That's... There is no other job that I can think of where that happens. And if if anyone you say to you in your job, so, um, Kieran, you're, you're, you teach in a university, if somebody said to you, and if suppose the University of Michigan came to you and said, Kieran, we'd like you to come over to the United States and teach here, and then um, Liverpool, University of Liverpool said to you, no, no, hang on a minute, Kieran, you, they Michigan has to give us some money before you can go, you'd say, get lost, and you'd have them in court before they knew what had happened, because that's completely unacceptable. And as I understand it, professional footballers are the only people that are treated like this. And this has never been justified and has never been agreed to by the players. There's no point where the players ever got together collectively, say, Yeah, yeah, this is in our interests. Um, and so uh, the, the the system needs to be really addressed. And the starting point should be to say, well, you know, we should abolish it unless the teams are prepared to offer something to the players, which would compensate them for this uh, extraordinary um, withdrawal of their liberty. Wow. okay, that's intriguing because, I mean, from
0: just putting sort of the counter argument here, would there be any incentive for clubs to develop their own players then if they knew that those development costs would effectively be written off at, with a richer club coming in and we we are seeing um certainly under the under the elite player performance plan that we've got here in in England um that is effectively happening um I, i'm i'm just from from my point of view i, I look at academies i look at youth development and it's an expensive exercise. And the transfer system is a very, uh, very inelegant way of at least providing some acknowledgement for, for all of the investment that goes into players at a young age.
1: Well, so I, I think there are two aspects to this. So so the, the most important aspect is, is to say, well, just if, if I said, Kieran, we're going to have an arrangement where I can just walk into your bank account and take your money whenever I feel like it. You might say, no, That's no, you can't do is. that. You can't do that. But then I said, but then everybody said, well, yeah, but Kieran, actually, it's really good that Stefan gets to spend your money because he spends it on really good things. It's all very useful what Stefan spends your money on. So shouldn't isn't that a good argument? Couldn't Shouldn't you let that happen? To which you would say, no, get lost. I'm not interested in that. Um, well, probably something fruitier than that. But the the fact that the fact that you're constraining people to do things which no one else is made to do can't be justified by saying, yeah, but some good comes out of it. So that that, that I think is the first time. And I think the important thing to bear in mind is whenever we talk about this, people think we're talking about people like um uh Raheem Sterling or you know, um you know some of the uh Karim Benzema or you know, some of the big players out there. Mo Salah. We're not talking about those players. There are something like maybe anywhere between fifty and 100,000 professional football players around the world, and more than half of them are earning probably less than £25,000 a year. So we're talking about people who are actually paid very little and are tied down. So what you really want to think about is somebody who's played for some little club somewhere, being paid just about, paid beer money, and then they've got an offer from another club and they can't take advantage of that because their current club is saying, no, no, they've got to pay me for it. And that's that's the iniquity of the system. So that's the, that's, that's the first bit. Right? If it's wrong, it's wrong, regardless of whether you think that there's some uh, ancillary benefit to it. But then... If we address the question, do, would, it, would it affect training? I'm, I'm really not convinced that, that it would very much. Um, for the, I never believed that these training um, – I mean, there's the trickle-down story that the small clubs are developing players and then they pass them on to the big clubs. I've never really believed that as a story, and the data doesn't really show that. If you look, as you have looked in the accounts, you can see that most of the small clubs generating very little revenue in the transfer system, and the transfer money is all going between the big clubs – uh, across Europe and they're going to invest in training players regardless of what the compensation system is so so now i don't think it would have any significant impact on the training and development of players cool cool brilliant right that's 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 one problem
0: solved because i think uh, john mark bosman's lawyer has been talking about uh, a test case with regards to the transfer system and, and does it effectively provide players with a form of handcuffs for a few years. And, and I've been desperate for that case to go to court, but that one seems to have died uh, recently. So, so
1: yeah, um, I, I'm, think, I'm, <clears throat> I think it did die, to be honest. So Bos- um, um, Jean-Louis Dupont is now more focused on the Super League, as far as is what I hear.
0: Uh, in, in the States, what was the reaction to Super League? Because... Uh, certainly, there, there's, there's quite a few American owners of, of English football clubs who seem to be uh, in favour of it. What was the reaction of the, the fan base or, or the sort of you, know, you as an academic to, to this idea?
1: So uh, so I had a very good chance to get a, a real sense of that because I teach this to my students. So I, I explained to them what the deal was in the Super League, which was essentially in exchange for protection from... Um, uh, having to compete for places, the big clubs would hand out a bit of money to the smaller clubs, most of whom are on the verge of bankruptcy and so need the money. And to to, air, to pretty much every American I said who who heard this story, they said, "Well, what well, what's what's wrong with that? That sounds fine." And then when I explained to them just the intense hatred that people had for this idea, and the idea that it would uh, undermine the system of qualification on sporting merit. It took them a long time to come around to it, but I think they did, and I think they start to get it. And I think what's happening in America here is that certainly amongst younger people, they're starting to recognize some of the virtues of the, the system of competition and starting to actually question some of the ways in which the American leagues are organized, which essentially protect the owners, the billionaires from, from any form of competition. So I, I think it's... Um, uh how it, it's making a big change and the other because the other thing to say is the, the very concept of promotion and relegation when i came 10 years ago there was still a lot of people i had to go through this from um you know from day one of how how does it work and you know it's uh like the ted lasso um sketches um mm-hmm. and many of them would uh and and many of them still insist on calling it promotion and regulation um so, it, it, it's a hard concept for Americans to get a heritage, but it is starting. They are starting to get it, and they are starting to see the virtues. So, I, it's interesting to see whether that will have any longer term impact. Um, not at the moment, but it might do in, in the very long term. Cool, cool. Um, pre- presumably, you, you see
0: quite a bit of football in the States. You know, we, we, we have, in terms of club football, very much the domination by European clubs when they play clubs from other continents. We've got this FIFA World Club Championship, which is inevitably won by a European team. And and it's getting a bit tedious, tedious to a certain extent. Can can you ever see a time when the the MLS or South America or the Asian markets are genuine competitors for the best talent and and therefore the opportunity to be called the best club in the world?
1: Uh, that's that's a really good question. But I, again, I'd I'd want to break that into sort of two parts. I mean, we know that South America has been producing the best players or many of the best players for a very long time now. Um and um also, I think um it's quite plausible that the United States will start to produce and possibly Canada quite a lot of good talent um as time goes by. if you think about people like Pulisic, and uh, they're um they're starting to produce real talent but the the in the in South America, the problem is that the economic organization of the leagues is so. Are corrupt and um, so 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 poorly run that the those leagues uh, struggle to compete, and also the the countries of South America are relatively poor and so they can't really afford. Remember it's mostly rich countries that can afford to hire the best players and then I think in the United States, I think MLS is a different problem. MLS is trying to build a league that looks like the NFL. And the big thing about the NFL, no promotion and relegation, and the teams control the salaries. They bargain for salaries, and there's nowhere else for the players to go. If they don't play in the NFL, they don't get to go anywhere else. Whereas in the United States, that in the MLS, what they're trying to do, they're trying to, to control salaries. So they've got a salary cap and keep salaries down. Without, but the problem is they're they're competing in a global market, and so they can't afford to attract the top talent. And so, where MLS is right now is it's doing really well, or pretty well, in terms of attracting fans to watch games in stadiums. So, um, it, teams like um, Seattle Sounders, uh, Portland Timbers, Atlanta United, they're doing pretty well in terms of crowd sizes. They've got some, they've had some really big crowds here, but nobody is watching it on TV and people would rather watch premier league on a saturday sunday morning which is when it's shown over here than watch mls on primetime as things stand
0: well wow. okay so um and, and you know, carrying on with sort of the theme of uh football in the us and and you know being being old school south london i refuse to use the word soccer uh, because i've i've got my I've got my South London credentials on at present. We're in a World Cup here. Um, we're already starting to look forward to, and, and you know, we, we people are booking off time. And uh, I had some friends around with some school kids uh, last week, and one of the kids said, well, England's first match is, is 1 p.m. on a Monday. There's no way I'm going to school that day, Dad, am I? Um is 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 there the same level of enthusiasm or or any such enthusiasm in in the states because you know USA playing England USA playing Iran uh sound like pretty mouthwatering features to me
1: well I, again so uh, so I've got several things I want to say about so firstly as a fellow south londoner i have uh-huh. to tell you that soccer is a word that was first coined at oxford university in the 1890s and was adopted by Americans from the UK. And we have a lot of evidences. And up until the 1970s, soccer was a perfectly acceptable word, a word to use. So, for example, the autobiography of, um, uh, uh, of Matt, Sir Matt Busby was actually called Soccer at the Top. Not Football at the Top, Soccer at the Top. And is endless cases of that. And the thing about the word soccer is that it went into disuse precisely when Brits started to realize that Americans use it all the time. So it's sort of an exile word. It was okay until Americans used it, and then it became unacceptable. And um, I've written a, a whole book about this with my um, uh, call to Silke Wynick. So um, it's called It's Football, Not Soccer. Um, so I, So I want to put a plug in for that. Um, of course the 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 the, but but in terms of it so the second thing to say is bear in mind that the u.s men's team is pretty lousy but the u.s women's team dominates everything right Mm. and the u.s women's team has a huge following here and the women's world cup is an enormous thing much bigger than in any other country Um, and so the men in some ways are riding on the coattails of the women and yeah there is a lot of enthusiasm so at the last two world cups i think i think Maybe uh, yeah, I think the last two World Cups, the biggest uh, number of fans attending were actually from the United States. So um, uh, sorry, no, no, skip that. Um, Not um, Russia because of course they didn't qualify, but in the in Brazil and in um, and in uh, South Africa. They were the largest contingent of fans attending. So there will be an enormous number of Americans going to Qatar, um, probably bigger than any other group. And yes, there will be an immense following. And they will believe that they could win it right until they're eliminated. Right. So they they I mean, that's the American way. They just they just believe. Right. You know, like um, again, like Ted Lasso, they're just going to believe they can do it. And you you mentioned Ted Lasso a couple of times, and it, it's
0: Ted Lasso. By the way, is a very sensitive subject on on this podcast, oh, mainly wow. due to the fact that that my 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 co host and, and good buddy Kevin, um, he uh, they they were they were auditioning for somebody to play the part of Kevin Day, effectively the, the character that he plays, um, and he was asked to audition to play it to play himself, and he didn't get the part, and, and it still rankles. Um,
1: <laughs> oh dear, yeah, no, sorry, see that.
0: sorry. Um, but uh, ha- has it has it made a difference? Because we we hear anecdotally back home that, uh, that there's been an increase in in interest in the Premier League, and and there's people talking about going to to Crystal Palace, which you know, as everybody knows here, is is a small club, um, uh, simply because Ted Lasso was filmed there and so on. Or or, or is is it overplayed in terms of uh, what we're hearing this side of the pond?
1: Well, I mean, one thing I think is uh, one thing it's useful to remember is that football has always been a big sport in the United States. I mean, it it, it has a long history. They've been playing the game here since the eighteen nineties. So it's not, and people people confuse the fact that there's never been a very successful men's league in the United States with the idea that. People don't know about it or are not interested in it and what there is there is of course it's not like the NFL it's not like baseball it's not it doesn't have that big of a following but most people are familiar with it to some degree and certainly its popularity is growing and its popularity is growing in the 18 to 34 age group which the marketeers always say is is the most important and things like Ted Lasso are are having an effect I think but but I, I always say to people the biggest effect um, um, in terms of raising the popularity of sport is the video game. And the yep. FIFA video game is huge in the United States. And that has made a generation of kids really familiar. And I, I, I know this going the opposite direction because when, when we moved to the U.S., my middle son, he, was, uh, he went into a high school uh, here at the age of 16, and he was able to slot into the NFL talk on day one, he knew the names of all the players and what the positions were, and what he knew everything. And the reason was that he'd been playing the the Madden NFL right. game for two years. So I think that's and what you're seeing is in America. I think you're seeing a bit of the reverse of that. You're seeing that the FIFA game has really caught on, and again, generation of kids really really know their football or soccer, as they would say. Um, actually, what they, that's the other funny thing. They, whenever they talk to me, they say they say soccer, I say, I, and then they say well, I'm terribly sorry, I mean football. Because again, Brits get upset when America, that Americans call it soccer but Americans are desperate not to offend us so oh, really? remember that next time you're insisting that it's it's football not soccer
0: well I, I, i'm, I'm st- I still struggle with amortization with a Z or a Z in fact because <laughs> um i'm I'm currently writing a course uh for somebody and uh, i I sent it off and, and they said no you, you can't you can't use amortization with an s okay Oh, What? Well, this. This is. This. This is. This is. This is absolutely appalling. You know, we we invented amortization in football, not not anybody else. Um,
1: oh, oh, hang on. Um, they had an amortization in baseball in the nineteen forties. So I think that's you know that. In fact, what they've done in America, they got a tax exemption for amortization for baseball, which is that's really the incredible thing. So they get to oh, wow. they get to they get the tax deduction twice. So they can. Expense it on the profit and loss account and they can take it out, uh, 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 get a, uh, an allowance of tax against the balance sheet value. So there you go. So they know all about amortization with a Z. OK, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, in, in terms um,
0: of go, going, going back to um, some of the, the issues that we're seeing at present, um, I, I presume you wouldn't be over keen on financial fair play version one. What's, what's your first thoughts on financial fair play or uh, the, the whatever ludicrous a- uh, uh, acronym we now have to deal with from, from 2022 onwards uh, that have been introduced by UEFA, uh, where, where the word fair has, has finally, and, and, and rightly so, because it was never fair to begin with, um, the word fair has been removed and we've now got this three-tier approach. Have you, have you had a chance to to look at the proposals?
1: Yeah, I, I haven't. I've looked at it, but I don't think we I don't think they published the full details yet of how it's going to work. But um, uh, again, the, this is a, a this is a luxury tax idea that sees is taken from baseball. Baseball has has a luxury tax like uh, which works in sort of similar way. Um, and um, uh, and I mean, yes, I was very opposed to the original financial fair play. And yes, I wrote many times about how it's it's anything but fair. Um And I think what um, this the way to understand this is this is this is basically um, allowing UEFA to seem like they're doing something whilst at the same time serving the interests of the big clubs, because the big clubs, they don't want to spend lots of money on players. They want an agreement to cap salaries because the point is that that's in their interest so that they so that the billionaires can make more money out of the game. And that's what that's what I never get is why fans would ever be um, in favour of regulation, which just serves the financial interests of billionaires.
0: Excellent. I think we're definitely singing from the same hymn sheet because I I shout similar things, and uh, people say you, you, you don't understand, you, you, you're not looking after your own club. I think yeah, I'm entirely in agreement with you. Um, just going going back to. Um, the World Cup. We, we've got the 2026, and, and this is a bit of self-interest here. Um, we've got the 2026 World Cup taking place in in US, Canada, and, and Mexico. Where where will be the nearest venue to you?
1: Oh, um, that's a good question. So I think um, th- so. There isn't. I'm nearest to Detroit, which is uh, which is uh, which had games in the 1994 World Cup, but is not getting any games this time. So I think there's games in Chicago. So that's about a four-hour drive from where I am. But but you can come here anytime, uh, Kieran. Anytime you feel like dropping dropping in, and I'll show you the sights of Detroit if you're interested.
0: Oh yeah, I've i I've, I've seen Detroit in, in a few movies, um, and it's it's different.
1: It's not nearly as scary as they make out. And Detroit City FC is one of the best football games you'll go to anywhere. So um you should come over and try it. Well that that
0: sounds like a deal. Um so, so Stephanie, thank thank you so much. I'm I'm genuinely made up to get to talk to you at last because as I say, it was it was your book that that has led to to me being where, where I am today wh- wherever I am today and and nobody's quite sure. Um so so thank you so much uh for coming on the show and if there's any ever anything that we can do for you uh in terms of the lunacy of football finance just just give me a shout.
1: Oh yes there's plenty you can do for me so I'll definitely be taking you up on that. And of course I should say the fifth edition of soconomics will be out in October with uh three new chapters I think. So
2: Oh, sounds like a challenge. It's a fascinating interview, Kieran. Uh, The idea about abolishing transfer fees is an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, Stefan's viewpoint is why should
0: football be treated in a unique manner? um you know if if you or I were offered uh you know let's say the Swiss ramble phones you up and says oh yeah, we'll we'll, we'll double the money actually if it's you it need more <laughs> 40, <let's... laughs> forty quid wow <laughs> um to come on a podcast we'd you know we'd have to say goodbye and and you'd be able to leave um so so why is it that footballers are tied to clubs on long-term contracts and again, as Stefan said, the vast majority of professional footballers around the world are earning less than 25 grand a year so oh, well, it, it yeah. is, a, is a restraint on trade yeah. and are our views skewed by the huge numbers that we see in the premier league and the fact that you know perhaps we we you know we, and we do and, and i fall into this trap as well we see these young men as commodities which can which can benefit our club owners and is that right? You know, because I'm I'm not sure. You know, and as much as as a Brighton fan, we we all uh, are extremely grateful for everything that that Tony Bloom's done for our club. But I'm not I'm not sure that he's he taught Ben White to be a defender, uh, <laughs> yeah. who, who subsequently was was bought for uh, uh, 50, fifty million pounds, and I think it's fair to say hasn't had his two greatest performances in the last
2: two in the last two matches. Yeah. Uh, th- there's not enough money out there, Kieran, to t- entice me onto another pod. Basically, Chris Sutton on 606 might say that means I lack ambition, but I am happy to be the Matt Letitia of football finance podding. I will, I will stay and see what success we can bring to my local pod. And if at the end of a, if at the end of a 15 year career, we still haven't been promoted or won anything, I shall look back on yeah you know, with some satisfaction on the work that I've done and then hopefully get myself a job as a pundit on some kind of pod-related TV show where I watch live pods going out and comment on them as they go through. And then, in true Matt LaTissier style, turn into a bizarre right-wing conspiracy theorist. (laughs) Um, uh, But while we're still doing the pod, Kieran, and we're not getting the big bucks, you might like to help us by making a small monthly contribution to our pod and if you'd like to do that and remember it's always going to be free to air then you can go to patreon.com slash price of football and if you have a question you'd like answered on our monday questions pod email us at questions at price of football.com and in the meantime i shall hand you over to mr kieran McGuire for his customary farewell well um thanks as always for the
0: support and the interaction uh we we genuinely appreciate it um we we will be announcing uh we will be putting out on, on social media probably in the next 24 to 48 hours um details of how you can come and see us if you want to at Accrington stanley on may the 10th uh, and, and it will be great if it's anything like the wimbledon show it will, it will we will have a blast and hopefully you will too um you can support us on patreon for as little as one pound a month but you don't have to go down that route uh, if you don't want to. Yeah, you know, we, we know we know that money is tight uh, for everybody. Uh, but you, you can give us some good karma by by going on to your podcast app um, and yeah, hopefully giving us five stars if, if you if you're enjoying what we're putting out. And it and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you say. You could say you would rather have the show presented. By Len McCluskey and Nigel Havers, and what a <laughs> show that would be?
2: Yeah, we we, we I I'd, I'd subscribe to that, and and hopefully you will too. Yeah, Nigel Havers, of course, is Jack Whitehall's godfather. Is he? Uh, yes. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, and you'll be pleased to know that Nigel Havers, in real life, is exactly how he is uh, on screen. He's one of the most charming men you can ever meet, but he's one of those men. Even at his age, you become invisible when he's in the room. He just has this kind of pheromone thing that women just like Mr. Darcy style, just swoon. Just It's like, I remember walking down a corridor with Gary Lineker once and like literally 18 women just stopping and watching him go by. And and you just want to, you just want to turn around and say to them, he can't do crossword, you know, (laughs) he's got no hair on his body, but it's just like, just has something about him that, I haven't got, Kieran so but Nigel... Len McCluskey, on the other hand, I'd like to think I probably am sexier than <laughs> Len McCluskey. <laughs> so that's not that's something I can look back on when, I, when I'm older, when I tell the grandkids, how sexy were you, granddad? I was somewhere between Len McCluskey and Nigel Havers. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a pretty broad church. <laughs> it's, it's
2: pretty, <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. I'm football. for